welcome to season three of the Media Careers Podcast. We're delighted to bring you more incredible industry guests who are working across the film and media industry. The Media Careers Podcast is delivered in partnership with Interfilm, supported by the BFI awarding National Lottery funding. Please don't forget to hit the little subscribe button so you can be kept up to date with all of the latest episodes and also help us ensure that we reach more people. We really hope you enjoy this episode. is a head of broadcast engineering leading a global team at Apple, a brand and name that we are all more than familiar with. Growing up in Basildon in Essex, Anna was an active member of student productions and school, where she also won an award for outstanding achievers. She went on to attend Ravensbourne University to study broadcast technology with a specialism in audio, where she also won an award for her engineering and competency skills in the role of technology director at the 2011 degree show. Anna carried on her studies, undertaking an MSc at Birmingham City University in Broadcast Technology, which was part of a BBC training broadcast engineer programme. From here, she moved on to spend four years at NEP, working on national and international outside broadcast events, from Six Nations Rugby, Fox Sports Women's World Cup coverage in 2019, to Michael McIntyre's Big Show, which has all led her to her role at Apple, where she has recently been promoted. I've known Anna for a number of years now, but I can't wait to really understand how she came to choose broadcast technology as a job role and how she has navigated her career. Anna, welcome to the Media Careers Podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Hi, (laughs) nice to see you today. (laughs) Now, as I said, we've known each other quite a long time, um, but I can't wait to talk to you about how you got into the industry. I don't think we've ever had this conversation. No, I don't think we really ever have. So, uh, and also, you grew up in Essex, and I grew up in Essex. So, yes. we've already, we knew that we've got. We knew that we had representing. That yeah, representing Team <laughs> Essex. <laughs> but and it, we always start at the beginning on this podcast. So, can you remember what you were like as a child? Did you have any particular hobbies or interests? The hobbies bit is really easy to answer and I think it's something we both realise that we have in common as well which is dancing. I danced from the age of two and a half, three and only stopped during the pandemic. That was sort of a big part of my life. I had a big extended family that all lived close but I I don't know, I just consider myself a, a regular normal child. Lots of lucky opportunities with my family and my friends and and things but I worked at school but did I enjoy it I didn't dislike it but I wouldn't say I loved it just a a normal person really yeah and were you academic did you find studying easy or did it come naturally you said you kind of didn't mind it but was it was it kind of I didn't mind it and it came to me quite easily and I kind of did really well or not so much I think it depends is the answer so if we like look at teenage years I studied for my GCSEs Um, my school was really uh, generous in the sense that we we got to choose three options for GCSE and we basically had free reign they kind of said ideally have a nice balance so if you want to do a language we recommend it if you want to do a technology or a like a humanities then that's good you get a rounded curriculum and I kind of ignored that and I chose music drama and textiles (laughs) 
Well, actually, that doesn't surprise me because if dancing was kind of embedded in your into yeah. an early age and was something you were really passionate about, then that actually doesn't surprise me that you kind of were so, cho- choosing kind of creative arts as your as your subjects. That kind of yeah, seems, but I, d- I don't consider myself as creative though. Well, dancing's creative though, no, right? You're telling True. stories with dancing and performing. True. And yes, but I I've I've come to learn about myself. I don't actually like performing. Okay, dancing's more um, for you, for your kind of... Yes, yeah. you know, if you go to a party and there's music playing and people get up and dance, mm. I can't. If you choreograph something for me, I'm all over it. I can do that if there's a plan, effectively. Yeah. But there's would you a... want to perform in front of people, though, if you were at a party and you no. need a... Cho- so, yeah, so it's, so it's definitely... I, I don't mind it, but I, I wouldn't... I don't crave it. Did you crave it when you were that age, though, when you were choosing your GCSEs, do you think? Did you think, oh, maybe this might be a career path for me? I don't know, really. I don't know that maybe at the time, but I sort of approached my options as what do I enjoy? And I enjoyed that sort of thing. So I decided to put myself in that position. My school had a specialism of IT and computing. So... Uh, I think it was maths as well. So we had to do an IT GCSE. Ah, okay. Um, and then obviously your sciences, we had to do RE um, and that sort of thing. I got a bunch of grades of about A to C at GCSE, mm-hmm. which is good. Yeah. And I was lucky enough that I got sent to um, like personal study leave. So basically from the Easter holidays onwards, I could, I was a bunch of, I think maybe 40, 50 of us who were allowed to just not be in school. We didn't have to go into school to revise. So I would say at that point, yeah, I was quite academic um, and it came quite easily. Mm. But (laughs) when I went and did my Mm. A-levels afterwards, I chose biology, chemistry, IT and music tech. Okay. So sort of went more STEMI subjects, yeah. but still with the music tech, still with sort of that focus. Yeah. Um, dropped music tech after the first year and we had to do general studies. And I revised really, really hard. And I'm proud of this, but I got two Ds and two Es at A-level. Did you? So am I academic? I think it depends on the situation. Mm. Yeah, and maybe the subjects and maybe what's going on around just, you at the time I didn't just... know how to revise no and I think I know I found A-levels are really quite I found it a significant step actually from GCSE to mm. A-levels I really struggled with my A-levels as well and I couldn't understand how to write the essays that they were asking I just yeah so similarly I just really struggled with it but did, were were you enjoying the subjects was that kind of where you were absolutely thinking, yeah you it. were yeah, yeah yeah so I like I wanted to go to university and do chemistry Um, And my cousin who I studied my A-levels with did go to university to study, well, not quite chemistry. She did geology. So a mixture of sort of chemistry and the the ground, the earth that we walk on and live on. Um, And so I like studied really closely with her and our revision techniques really worked for her. But I just couldn't, I couldn't write down the bit of information that got the mark. So I would be able to like explain it, but if you don't write the three words that get you those three points on the exam paper, mm. kind of doesn't make a difference whether you've explained it or not. I was going to say that's something that I just I I didn't know how to 
do. No, so, it's, it's the thing, isn't it, about this, this, the education system that, we're, that we have is that everything is so rigid. And as you say, if you don't write in a particular way or include the words or have the real structure, then actually you don't get the marks. But actually that doesn't mean to say that you don't understand the subject in depth or have a yeah. great, you know, interest and passion for it. And yeah, 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 it's really interesting. It doesn't stop you being able to apply it. No, um, no. It's just a, a means of measuring. So I, I am academic. Yeah, you are academic, yeah. There's always this perception that people that go into lots of careers like this are straight A students or top mm. of their class or whatever, and you don't have to be. No, I think that's really important to say, really important to say. And Anna, were you aware of the media industry at this point? Had Because obviously you were aware of kind of the creative sector as a whole, because you obviously danced and, yeah. and, and chosen the subjects that you did at GCSE and then obviously music tech at A-level. But were you thinking about careers at this point when you were choosing GCSEs? I don't know whether I was thinking careers, but I was definitely leaning towards the things that I enjoyed mm. and definitely things that I know that you have people in your life that can relate to this as well. But I would go, you know, to my, my dance performances and we'd go to a, a big theatre and there'd be the lights and the sound and for me the wow factor that you give to the audience I started to get really interested in that so in school I, I was part of the choir club and, and that sort of thing which meant more performances which meant that I could then get involved with some of the stage management or the technical things and my dad was involved in a in a, like a local panto society he still is and Amazing. so there were all of these little things that were always present mm. as well as the creative stuff that went along with it I, I studied music and learned an instrument that sort of thing so I was always around it I liked standing in an audience at a festival and having the impact of the show the lights the sound the the overall thing so that's sort of what I started to feel really interested in okay and at that time there were some 28 day Ofcom licenses that were being handed out to community radio stations and I found one nearby and they were doing a, a little course to get involved with the you know volunteer program that, that ran it and I went when I was about 14 and I didn't stick it out. But then when they eventually got a permanent community license, uh, I ended up going and doing work experience with them when I was in year 12. So 16, 17. Yeah. So at this point, I still thought I was going to go and do a career in, in chemistry, doing something. Mm. But I was getting more and more involved in the technology side of things. And I was really, really lucky that I knew somebody who... When I went to a festival, I got the chance to go backstage and I saw the outside broadcast trucks. Okay. Um, now, it's, now it's making sense. <laughs> yeah, now it's making yeah. sense. Yeah. And I saw someone who, at the time, she was probably early 20s. She had brown curly hair. And I saw her in the distance setting up mics and setting up a stage for a little you know, backstage session sort of thing. And I've worked with her since. And I don't know whether it was a conscious thing or not but I sort of thought oh maybe I do have a chance to do a career in that so by the time I came to choose my future whether I was going to university and if so what I was going to study 
I'd already realised that, you know, I wasn't going to get into Edinburgh or Glasgow or Manchester to study chemistry. It just wasn't realistic <laughs> with the grades I was getting. But actually, there was this thing that I really enjoyed and maybe I could actually make a career out of it. So I found a whole bunch of different courses that were, there was like a, a live event technology course at Glamorgan University. I don't know if it still exists. And then the radio thing appeared again. So I sort of thought, well, this broadcast engineering and then I saw this person. So I just started trying to do a bit of research and thinking maybe I could have a career doing that too. I love that so much. <laughs> I love it. Ha- <laughs> if you've not seen her like setting up the studio, that kind of moment might, I mean, maybe it would have done, but that's quite a significant thing in your memory that actually you saw her setting yeah. up the, the smaller soundstage or, you know, whatever she was doing, mm-hmm. prepping. Have you told her that story? Does she know that that was a moment for you? Uh, if not, she's going to know now. <laughs> I don't know whether I've, uh, she does know, but I think I've mentioned it before. She was one of the first people I worked with properly when I actually sort of got my foot in the door in the industry. Yeah. So I love um, that. I, love that. Yeah. I think it just shows, doesn't it? We We know this anyway, but those experiences and having your eyes open to where opportunities could lie and that the fact that the industry has so many different jobs Mm -hmm. but if you don't know and you don't see it then actually you can you never know that this could be a career path for you so how brilliant that you got that access backstage and saw saw her working away um I love that anyway anyway uh, moving (laughs) on so uh so then you so you you choose Ravensbourne University right you go that's where you end up well I didn't initially oh did you not ah okay so where did no. you choose originally then? So I originally applied to De Montfort, Salford, and I think Coventry. Yeah. I can't remember the exact courses. But when I got my A-level results, and I don't know what it's like for everyone else, but for us, you sort of went into school, up to the school office, and everyone was all there together, and you get your envelope, and, and people start opening them in front of each other, and they start celebrating and getting excited because it means that they've got into the universities that they wanted to or that they could go and start whichever careers that they wanted to. Mm -hmm. I opened them and I was disappointed Mm -hmm. because I worked really hard Mm -hmm. and to see all of your peers be really excited about their hard work paying off and getting great results and yours, meaning that you would get into the universities but it just like something didn't feel right. Mm. So I decided that I would defer for a year. I actually rejected my offer from De Montfort and despite absolutely not meeting the criteria from Salford, they accepted me anyway and decided to defer. And then I'd always heard about this thing called clearing, but I didn't really know what it was. Mm. And I'd had a place at university. So clearing didn't apply to me but I had a look anyway and I found the post-production course at Ravensbourne which was being advertised and I realized that often if there are post-production courses or operations courses or film courses they were part of the, the faculty and there were often other courses related so that's how I found Ravensbourne oh, and I decided already to go do a gap year I just worked in a shop for a year And then when I came to actually apply to go to Ravensbourne, I remember having my interview um, and we had a little test and then I had a little tour. And I said to the wonderful tutor, Martin, 
well, you know, thank you for the opportunity today. When will I find out? And he went, oh, you've already got your results, haven't you? And I said, yes. And he was like, well, you've got a place. Yeah. And, and that was great. And the requirement was effectively a qualification. Yeah. I don't even think now I would pass the bar on paper to go to the equivalent course that exists. Mm. That's really interesting. God, there's so much in there. Because you're right, that moment must have been really tough when you got your A-level results. I mean, I I, it's, a, yeah, it's an extraordinary thing that we do for young people. It's like put them all, I, I think that still does happen. You put all, because all, you see it on the telly, don't you, in the summer, in August. Yeah. And I think it's really important for any young people listening to this, that actually if you are in that situation where the results that you get, whether that's at GCSE or at A-level or even at university, that it doesn't mean that your whole of your life is going to go in another way now. It doesn't mean that you can't go on and do what you want to do. So then you went to Ravensbourne. Then I went to Ravensbourne. Then you went to Ravensbourne after your year out. Were you ready for that by that point? After your year out, were you ready to kind of get back into studying? And Well, I don't equate Ravensbourne with the uni experience. No, okay. In, in what all, way? In what way? Ravensbourne, when I went, was initially in a suburb of South London. And then knowing it was going to be moving to the Greenwich, North Greenwich Peninsula. And I sort of had worked for a year. I hadn't saved because I wasn't very savvy. And I was looking at, you know, the practicalities of university, I guess. And what actually made most financial sense for me was to live at home with my parents still. They offered that as an opportunity because even with the student loans and grants to an extent, my household income was high enough, which is is lucky that I wouldn't have got any extra. Mm-hmm. And living in London is absolutely extortionate. Yeah. So I was ready for the chance to apply and learn knowledge in an area I was finding more and more interesting. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I chose Ravensbourne actually was because it had very strong industry links. For me, I enjoyed it. I did well there, but it was a mechanism for me to get to where I wanted to go yeah it literally opened the doors that I wanted it to open it put me in situations where I could either approach the people I wanted to approach or be introduced to different things so I was ready for it so you you get a recognition for the end of the degree show at Ravensbourne yeah um Ravensbourne's a university that focuses on a bunch of different creative sectors and there's a degree show that they always do at the end of the year where the fashion students get to showcase all their wonderful creations and the design students get to do the same and the broadcast students get to do a bit of both they get to showcase their pieces of work their films or or programs that they've edited and created on that side but as engineering students you've got to make it work and in the first year CIS Live which was the outside broadcast company, used to be BBC outside broadcasts that got sold and and bought up. They brought one of their shiny new trucks down to the building and I volunteered to help. Didn't really know what I was doing. And one of the things I volunteered to do was go make someone a cup of coffee. Now, I don't drink tea or coffee and Ravensbourne's canteen closed at like three or something ridiculous. So I found someone with coffee granules but they didn't have a spoon so I guessed the amount of coffee granules you put in a cup <laughs> and I made this I made this person 
what I now learn is probably a cup of tar and I <laughs> and I gave it to him I made myself memorable by doing that accidentally that. and then that uh that person went back to Cis Live and said oh we should offer some people some work experience to go to Wimbledon myself and a couple of other people put our names forward and I was selected to do work experience at Wimbledon in the sound department and my fellow student Dan did work experience in the vision department so that's when I then worked with the uh, wonderful lady I'd seen in the distance and luck I guess on my part unlucky for those who it affected but a couple of the truck guarantees who are the people who are technically responsible for the facility they were unfortunately unwell during the tournament so the staff members that I was working with as sound assistants in the studio and you know setting things up on the courts they had to go into the trucks to backfill for people that were unwell which meant that they paid me like a shiny 90 pounds a day or something <laughs> as a technical assistant but I was then on their freelance books Fast forward to the end of the championship, I got called to go and do a Red Bull crazy event at Battersea Power Station because, you know, circumstances happened and a bunch of people were still unwell and I went, didn't really know what I was doing, but I then got paid the full freelance rate. And I emailed a wonderful chap called Andy James, who used to lead the sound department at SIS, and I said, thank you so much for having me at Wimbledon. I learned so much. I would love the opportunity to come to anything else. Is there anything else that I can come to to experience, to see what's going on? And he replied and said, absolutely. I need someone to go to India for the Commonwealth Games in a month's time. I need to know now. Do you want to go? Oh, wow. <laughs> and I went, uh, yes. Yeah, I'll do that. Amazing. So by the time I went back for my second year. You'd already I'd, had this experience. I had freelanced at Wimbledon accidentally via work experience, yeah. worked on a Red Bull event and then spent a fortnight at the Commonwealth Games in India. Incredible. And that's not luck, Anna. That's that's taking the opportunities where they are. Like you put your name it's for absolute. Wimbledon and it's like a domino effect, right? You put your yeah. name for Wimbledon and then da 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 all this other stuff happens. It's about being proactive as well with a little bit of it's luck a... thrown in as well, obviously. There but... is a little bit of luck there. It is about the tenacity and the, you know, sending the emails to and and making yourself be that person who mm. others want to want to be around. Mm. But our industry is really, really good and welcoming and wants to champion talent and wants people to progress. So I owe an awful lot to those people who gave me the work experience, offered me the opportunities to go to the Commonwealth Games and took me to IBC and things but you know there was a bit of right place right time as well yeah but that's sometimes how it works but that's but that only can only slot into place if you've done all of those other things yeah. as well so I love that my goodness you'd learned so much by the time you even got into your second year that's not <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I did get a, a recognized very kindly by Ravenswarn yeah, and um, very much deserved as well, really deserved. Um, in my second and third years, but by the time I went back from my second year, I'd already, the little seed had been sown in my head and I'd already been given a taste of what working in the industry was like, so. Yeah, yeah. You, and 
was that taste when you were graduating from Ravensbourne did was the taste actually definitely going to be outside broadcast was that where you were headed yeah so I think I always like the idea of outside broadcasts and I actually there were a few different specialisms that the grand total of 10 of us split ourselves between <laughs> and one of the pathways was outside broadcasts and that was actually my first choice yeah. but they couldn't run all of them unless it was an even split so okay. I did I think we only specialized in the second and third year so I had said oh well I'll, I'll do the audio pathway but I also knew that I could still do outside broadcasts if I wanted to yeah so yeah I'd Throughout university, I, I went and did the odd match of the day for Sis Live and uh, some one show as well. And then when we graduated in 2012, the Olympics was happening. So the Olympic Broadcasting Service have a long standing scheme where they talk to local universities and schools in whichever the host city or country is and gets talent in to give them opportunity in a bunch of different areas and a lot of people at Ravensbourne were involved in that I wasn't because I worked at the Olympics but I worked for this live yeah. so I was working, you were already with some... working with a company that was yeah. delivering some of the technology exactly yeah okay so I, I graduated and then within you know a couple of months had been working at the equestrian in Greenwich Park for the Olympics. Yeah. And then I was at the table tennis in the XL for the Paralympics as a fully paid up sound assistant or A2, depending on which part of the world you're in and, and the job titles. But I, I was on full rate. I was... Your, your career was had the, started, right? I was the same as, as anyone else. Yeah. The fact I'd just graduated was irrelevant and you know I had some peers from my year or the year below who were on the OBS scheme which was great but I was sort of kind of there supervising them at some times which felt a bit weird but it was is what it is yeah well and it it's really interesting because your career had actually had almost started right back at that kind of Wimbledon moment without we probably even you really even realizing at the time that actually this was it you were there yeah, yeah. And how extraordinary to and amazing to be at the olympics being as you say a, pa- a paid sound assistant doing the job that you so wanted many to do. people aim to work at an olympics let alone a home olympics yeah and to happen to you know fortune of when i was born and where i grew up and <laughs> taking the, the year that, out taking the year out <laughs> yeah and the fact that you know the government and London mayor and things had put all of the bids together to host the Olympics and they said yes and all of those (laughs) things were absolutely nothing to do with me but it just meant that I happened to be there at the time that the host Olympics was literally on my doorstep yeah so why wouldn't you grab it was it everything you hoped it would be and more like it was so phenomenal anyway wasn't it the Olympics it was really good yeah yeah. There were so many weird things that I learned as well. Like, um, you know, I remember a day at the equestrian where as a sound assistant, often you're sort of on the floor or in the arena and you've got the sound supervisors or the A1s in the truck who are the people actually mixing. So you're sort of supporting them and looking after the equipment. And I remember Tim, the sound supervisor, calling over talkback and wearing headsets and radios. And he says, there's 
one of these microphones is making a really weird noise. And as he's talking to us, the noise gets progressively worse. And the cables are like run under this staging that's on the hill and the horses are doing the dressage and show jumping on top of it. Mm -hmm. So one of my colleagues crawled underneath the stage and um, the weird noise that he had heard was like the wildlife from Greenwich Park eating through the cables. (laughs) Um, And microphones actually get powered by volts. So the cables have little bits of current, uh, 48 volts running through them. Uh, so, yeah, she found a, a, a bit of fur and sort of no, these I things don't. you just totally don't. <laughs> I never thought that. No, why would you? I'd have no, no. So you know, I was very much learning the the partially non-technical parts of outside broadcast. Yeah, um, the realities <laughs> of working in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, that's insane. I love that. Um, so Anna, you with your career, you at the beginning, you could have carried on being a freelancer. You've you were already doing it. You'd had all of this experience yeah. working for companies like Sis. But then you do go and choose to work with NEP as a, as a staff member, right? You become full time. Yeah, NEP. I always wanted to be a staff member because mm-hmm. I thought it would give me the most opportunity to train and progress. Okay. So I actually worked for Sis Live as a staff member for just shy of a year before they decided to close the outside broadcast division and being made redundant at 24 is not in anyone's plan. No. And I just bought a house, so I needed to have regular income to pay a mortgage. And I think the other thing with freelancing is you have to have, in my opinion, quite a lot of self-worth and you have to be quite brash at times Mm. because if you say no to a couple of jobs because whatever situation comes up you fall down the list a little bit and then if you don't get the calls then you can't guarantee your income Mm -hmm. so if you are in a position to freelance and you have established yourself already you have so much freedom to work on basically anything you want Mm. but if for whatever reason you can't be that you're unwell for a week or something I thought at the time that I was too low in the pecking order too low in the list that I wouldn't get that regular work okay. and I definitely went bought a house I needed it so I ended up working for the BBC for a couple of years mm-hmm. oh yes of course yes yeah, so you went on to do your master's as well didn't you sorry I'm jumping ahead but yeah you went on to do your master's as part of that training mm. program right yeah I'm a bit indifferent to the master's it I, I did it because it was contractually part of my job yeah I actually had a a few different options I nearly went to go and work for Formula One management um, but I decided to go and work as part of the BBC trainee scheme because they still do it but they take on apprentices at 18 Mm -hmm. and they give them the opportunity to do a degree in the industry and then they spend three years moving around different BBC departments and the opportunity to go and work for other companies Um, and then they were also taking graduates on where they put us through a master's scheme. For me, I'd already learned a lot of the content. It was always nice to refresh and, and see it from a different angle. But my peers on the program were computer science graduates or physics graduates. Okay. Um, so they hadn't had the intro, intro into broadcast that I had, which is where the MSc became really important. And we spent two years going through different BBC departments. And I looked at that opportunity and I thought, there's no guarantee a job at a job at the end of it but having two years of BBC on my CV and the opportunity to work in areas that isn't outside broadcast makes me a more rounded engineer 
So I did it. But when the scheme was coming to a close, I wanted to go back to outside broadcasts. So <laughs> I went to, I went and worked for a little subsidiary of NEP called OBS TV um, for a couple of years and then moved across to NEP UK and worked in the big trucks. Yeah. Um, and what was that lifestyle like working as a sound engineer for, for you know, for kind of full time for an outside broadcast company? Because just like doing your intro, you will you work on so many different shows, right? You had a period of time working on the oh, but, yeah. And, of, and how, what does that look like kind of managing life? And if anybody's listening to this and, you know, thinking, God, outside broadcast sounds flipping amazing. That's where I want to go. What what was that? Kind it is of... amazing. Yeah. But it is grueling. Mm. Staying in a hotel and eating in restaurants aren't exciting when you when you've done a 13, 14 hour day, which is the reality of a lot of jobs, traveling up, there's a thing called derig weather. And you can guarantee, even if it's been glorious sunshine, that if it's going to rain, it's going to absolutely pour at exactly the time you have to work your hardest and get everything either set up or more, more usually it's as, as you pack it away. Yeah. So long hours, it's, a very privileged position to say you've you know gone and worked at all of these amazing events or been to Arsenal been to Man United etc the reality is you're in the car parks by the bins <laughs> with portaloos if you're lucky catering sometimes so in terms of is it a healthy lifestyle is it a sustainable lifestyle lots of people make it work mm. I absolutely love it I don't think anything will ever match it quite for me because you but must get a real buzz from it Anna. easy no but it's not easy but you the buzz must because you were there for a long time doing outside broadcast so yeah the, but the buzz of being a part of those live events must outweigh the the strain for for a lot for quite a long period for you 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 yourself and as you say some mm. people some, pe- some people it doesn't work for and some people continue but for you it lasted quite a long time right the, the weighing of the because how long were you at yeah. NEP for? Six years? Seven years? Uh, no, I was actually only at NEP for four years. Oh, for four years. Okay. But still, but for I four years. In, I yeah. did outside broadcasts for eight, nine years. Yeah. Yeah. So the buzz of kind of being on that must have... Because it must be phenomenal. And you, I, I, I think probably you're working as a team, kind of the camaraderie. The people are the best thing. So I've yeah. not worked directly in the industry in outside broadcasts now for three and a bit years but as you all know some of my absolute closest friends are people from working uh, with them uh, in in that world the reality of it is as someone who's now stepped away I'm lucky if I see those people twice a year yeah (laughs) because they're they're on the road the whole time aren't they (laughs) because they're working so hard Mm. but it's yeah, it's great. The people make it. The opportunities you get are very exciting. I'm not really even a sports fan, but I, I can sit here and list so many exciting things that I've had the opportunity to, to work on. And different thing with outside broadcast is the core team of engineers that come with the truck. There's probably only two of you mm-hmm. or three of you. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is freelance different production teams you work with so many different people in so many different situations but it doesn't really matter you just sort of it's like you've worked with them forever yeah 
I don't I don't think you get that in many places. No, no, I don't think you do. And I think because there's that environment of the live broadcast that actually I don't think you can replicate that anywhere else. Like it's yeah, it must be incredible. So I'm going to ask you a really tricky question. What was your favorite OB that you worked on? Um, I think they all have different challenges. Mm. I preferred the bigger ones because yeah. I think they challenged me more. I don't know. I mean, there are some that come to mind that are life moments to say I've worked on this thing or that thing, like the Olympics in, in London and Rio and Commonwealth Games in Delhi. And, you know, to say that I've worked on Wimbledon, to say I've done mm. the all those iconic goal. events. Yeah. Yeah. So so obviously that's that's a big thing. But actually, it's just some of the some of the jobs that may seem less exciting, but you had a good time with your your peers. I'd say those. One of the weirdest things I did yeah, go on. Um, at the very end of my time in outside broadcasts, lockdown happened and live events stopped. And when live events stopped, it meant that the outside broadcast industry basically ground to a halt. Yeah. However, no one was allowed to go to work and that included MPs. So there's a division of NEP that provides the facilities to broadcast parliamentary coverage for BBC Parliament, Sky, you know, you can watch it online directly. Myself and a few colleagues went in and took lots of equipment and we augmented the setup so that the MPs could participate remotely. So one of the very last things I did was I found myself sat at the sound desk and I mixed the first ever virtual parliamentary session. And I think we were one of the first in the world. Wow. Is that a highlight? I'm not sure. But but it's a moment, right? I suppose maybe that's moment. it. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's not highlights. Maybe it's moments, as you say, for whatever mm. reason, whether it's because it's particular, like the Olympics, or whether it's because you and your colleagues, you know, I don't know, you had rain pouring in the truck and you had to hold the roof up or something. Do you know what I mean? There was, there was probably just Definitely like moments. <laughs> Have you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but this just is maybe. With outside broadcast, yeah. there's the technical element of broadcasting. And then there's the element that you don't necessarily think of, which is taking an articulated lorry to the middle of nowhere and having to expand it often so that you make more space and then physically have to put the floor down and, you know, dealing with very, very big power requirements and air con. And the reality is if you don't level the truck properly, or sometimes even if you do level the truck properly, but that is the wrong thing to do for that truck, then it rains inside the truck because you're in a metal box in the middle of a field. Um, you know. Yeah, and we don't think about that. Yeah, Glastonbury is probably a classic. <laughs> Glastonbury, the year I did Glastonbury, it was one of the muddy years. And we put big metal sheets down so that the trucks don't sink in the, in the fields. Yeah. But the ground was so wet that, like, they were having to bring the trucks around that sucked up the, the poof from the portaloos to suck up the mud. And the reality is that you're digging trenches to, you know, keep equipment safe and you are climbing on the roof to make sure that the, the ducts that drain the water off of the top are not filled with leaves. And we've got a very good close friend and I remember we worked on a job where we were in one truck and our colleagues were working in a 
sister truck of it and we got a call from them to say it's raining inside and electrical equipment and water don't generally mix well so we then had a week of paranoia we were parked half under the roof of the o2 so we had the water from the roof landing on our truck and we were sort of constantly just looking up going is it going to start doing it here because there's the other truck that's identical is doing it so yeah, there's a strong likelihood that your one will too. I mean, yeah. it's mental, as you say, uh, and none of that's in the job description, right? <laughs> no. that, they're not telling you that you're going to be holding roofs up or putting umbrellas up inside a, inside a truck so you can exactly. keep on doing your job. I know, bonkers, completely bonkers. <laughs> but so then you decide to take, so you've got, you've got all of this experience in the OB world, kind of traveling around the world, but then you decide to make a slight career shift. Is that fair to say? Kind of looking at a different, yeah. slightly different path within the industry. What what was the instigator for that for you? Perfectly honestly, we were working in the pandemic in 2020 and I was going into Parliament to, to cover parliamentary sessions. But most of my colleagues were on furlough. And one evening we got a, a, a group email that said, everyone join the call tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. I got made redundant when I was 24 and that one was a everyone come to this meeting room in this hotel and we sat there and watched this presentation where we got to the slide where there was all of this wonderful information and at the very bottom it said not viable and that's how we learned that we were being made redundant. So I stood there and looked at this email that said join the call tomorrow morning at 10am you don't have to be uh, you know a financial director of a company to go yeah, I, I can see where this is going. Mm. So I just started applying for everything and anything because mm. there also was no freelance market. There was no work because there were no events because no one was allowed to leave. No, no that bit so, of the industry had completely stopped, hadn't it? Just overnight. Yeah. yeah. So I applied for a whole bunch of different roles, including a role at Apple. Mm-hmm. Very particularly, how many times do you get to say that you go and work as a broadcast engineer at Apple? Um, amazing it is amazing Mm. so I applied and I didn't really think anything of it because I wasn't made redundant I very very fortunately was not at risk personally Mm -hmm. but then I went through the interview process and we still weren't allowed to go anywhere really so all my interviews were remote I had a lot of them which was good and then they offered me the job Mm. and I sat there like I've just said I thought, how many times do you get to say you're going to be a broadcast engineer at Apple? Yeah. And, and so I decided, well, I'd best... I'd best take I'd best, this. <laughs> I'd best go for it. And and I'd always, in the back of my mind, I love outside broadcasts, but I didn't want to be doing it when I was close to retirement. No. So I always, in the back of my mind, thought... I will do something else at some point. I didn't really know what that was or when because Mm. nothing will be outside broadcasts. But then this sort of just landed Mm. and I thought, why not try now? Yeah, this is this might be that moment. It's scary because it's so different. Yeah. Um, So tell us. In reality, I'm still one of only, you know, probably less than 100 people in the country that can do my job in outside broadcasts. So I took it also knowing that if the industry were to recover and this really doesn't suit me and it's not the right fit, I can probably just go back and yeah. as a freelancer or staff member, yeah. 
do what I was doing before. Yeah, so there I was haven't. that kind of backup plan should it for, if yeah. for some reason not work out. But it has absolutely worked out and you've been at Apple for, what did you say, three and a half years now? Just, yeah, just over three years. Yeah, amazing. And being promoted in that time as well. So yep. could you describe for us what your job is now and what your general responsibilities are? If you were to open up your Apple Music app, which is on every single iPhone and iPad and, and everything, there's right at the bottom in the middle a button that says radio. And Apple have radio stations that you can listen to live without an Apple Music subscription even. And when I originally joined, I was brought in as part of the team in the UK to help manage the technology and the facilities that make those radio stations possible. And rather than operational engineering, which is sort of what I was doing in outside broadcasts, I found myself more doing system design and planning and being more of a project engineer, mm -hmm. which was great because I could take all of the stuff that I'd learned doing in the moment work and the things that I'd learned at different departments in the BBC and kind of join them together. So after finding my place being a bit of a project engineer, system designer, um, taking those skill sets and applying them in a slightly different way, I got more involved in our global operations uh, within my immediate team rather than just the UK. And we've grown. There was an opportunity towards the end of last year to help lead some of my peers and create a, a clear broadcast engineering team within my division. So that's where I find myself today. Which is incredible. And that involved a promotion. So congratulations. That's amazing oh, thank news. You. And and I think what's brilliant to hear is just how the skill sets that you've built up with through kind of outside broadcasting and through the BBC kind of led you to this point at Apple that then means that you can utilise all of that experience with a completely different mm. company in a completely different way, but still kind of utilising all of that engineering skills and knowledge that you've learned over the last however long through all of the different jobs you've got. It must and be I amazing kind I'm... of pull, pulling all that expertise in together. Yeah, and I think like one of the gems of our industry re really are the people so i've spoken a lot about the, the people within outside broadcasts but my my immediate colleagues now i some don't see some of them at all in person because we're dotted all over the globe that doesn't matter no. they are experts in their field and would i call myself an expert in my field probably not but well, I'm, I'm you getting... should do anna <laughs> i'm getting <laughs> better <laughs> I'm getting better at um, being proud of, of what I do. But this is the thing. All of my peers, both at work and personally, in, you know, my friends are top of their game. They are some of the best people in the country, if not the world, at what they do. And so it's, it's a very privileged position to be in because our industry are full of people like that, regardless of whether it's in the UK or anywhere else. We wow. just work with really adaptable, really welcoming, really intelligent people. Well, I think I would reflect that right back at you because that there's a reason oh. that you're that you had an incredible outside broadcast career and also now and a really hugely successful career at Apple. So um, I think you are definitely amongst those people as well. Thank you. Um, 
So Anna, we don't have too long left on the podcast, but before we go, I would love to know, you've already talked about one of the reasons why you love this industry, people being at the heart of that. Mm. Are there any other things that resonate with you when you think, God, why do I love working here? Why do I love kind of spending time in the in the media and entertainment industry? That's a tough one because I have some really good friends who are nurses mm-hmm. um, and, and teachers yeah. and they work really, really hard and it's really, really clear to see the difference that they make to society day in, day out. And it's quite easy to look at what we do in our world and potentially think it's quite frivolous or doesn't matter. But for some people in the world, it's lifeline. I don't personally think that anything I have done, I can't sit here and name a thing that I have done, which I know has made a massive impact on people. But whether it's, you know, someone being a a lifelong kid of Insta fan, And I went and made it so that you could hear when that goal happened at Kidderminster in 2015 or whatever it was. Yeah. That actually might be not a life moment necessarily, but maybe, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's easy to go news is a lifeline or really super important for society, but actually relaxing is as well. I've never worked on it, but um, one of my friends who who you also know spends, I don't know, maybe half of her life uh, making sure that we can watch Love Island. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Yeah, and that's big content, right? Is that something that changes people's lives or or anything like that? I don't know, but actually just kicking back, relaxing and enjoying media content, whether it's TV, radio, music, podcasts, whatever – it, it provides that balance to some of those more stressful times yeah. and opens that window to what matters for you because yeah. there is content that covers everything. Yeah. So, yeah, without a doubt. I just I'm... do my little bit to help that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a really valid and important reason. And without a doubt, it does change people's lives. It does. And I think, um, you know, the ITV drama on the post office, that's happened to exactly it's a really that's good, a really good example really good example of that right it does it matters and it changes mm-hmm. people's lives so um i think all of all of us hope to contribute something in that way don't we so um and then finally anna what advice would you give to someone who is looking to get into the industry that loves sound whether that's for ob or working for a company like apple what what advice and tips would you give to somebody that's thinking about a career specifically within sound as well so anything that they could or should be doing um, Ignoring the sound bit, I think this applies to everything, but being passionate is one of the most important things because we are a really good industry at teaching people who want to be taught. So if you are interested, there is a way. What I particularly struggle with, and I say this as someone who's not in a position of employing people or having a say in in such matters, but you know, I did a STEM talk at a sixth form the other day, and one of the tutors came up afterwards and said, "This is great. What what work experience opportunities are there in the industry?" And there isn't really a a resource that exists no. to point people to to say, "If you're interested and you're a student, go look here." Mm. It kind of at the moment still is knocking on all the doors, getting lots of no's, and hoping that someone says yes and that is demoralizing and that's going to put people off 
other than my personal advice of being that person that others want to be around, being interested, being inquisitive, and showing that you're willing to learn and put the hard work in, I don't really know what to say. Mm. Yeah, but I think that's because... I think I think all of those things are really valid though. So when those doors do open that you do then that you are ready yeah. to be to be a sponge and to learn from those professionals. I don't want to I don't want to finish it on a downer because I think our industry is great. Mm. But sort of a call out to anyone who is listening in the industry mm. who has a position of authority where they are able to put some money aside for a work experience program or even just to encourage your staff or yourself to go out and take part in STEM events or anything. It's all going to help. And it will help at time of recording like this in a couple of weeks time, um, the SIMPTI UK division are are holding a session for sort of people early in their careers and also for companies to come and those companies who probably have those opportunities that I don't know about Mm. can offer them or at least demonstrate what they do to the future generation of engineers and those people can demonstrate their worth back. We need more things like that. We need to find a way collectively of being able to answer that tutor's question of where where can I send students to look? Because yeah, hundred percent. I don't know what that is. No, and I think I think COVID exacerbated the sh- the kind of shortage of work experience supplies as well. I think that um, you know, because everything shut down, I think a lot of those opportunities just didn't didn't lift lift up yeah. again. And I think that has definitely kind of put a blocker there. That is for sure. Um, but I think, and if it, I hadn't been given that work experience at Wimbledon. I probably wouldn't be sat here in this way today. No, I'd so still think... probably be fighting my my cause and I'd be successful because that's the sort of person that I am naturally. But I still value all the way my career has panned out to so those people that offered me as a 19-year-old the chance. And I'd already chosen this, the, the university course. I'd already got in despite my D's and E's. I'd already opened the doors to get myself in the position to be offered in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, Anna, it's been amazing talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. Good luck with like leading your team at Apple. We know that you're going to do an incredible job there. And um, for whatever path you take next in your career, I can't wait to see where it goes. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Carrie.